second fiddle is a colloquialism or a figure of speech pretty much confined to the American English language. It's come to mean essential, but generally unrecognized, kind of in the background, but very essential. It comes from the orchestra, where there's the first violin chair, the second violin chair, the third violin chair, and so on. And the first violin chair is the one that gets all the solos and on all the recognition. But without the second chair and the third chair, it, it just wouldn't be a full symphony. So you, you need the unrecognized, the essential, but unrecognized. Now, what is a fiddle? I once asked, what's the difference between a fiddle and a violin? And I was told, how you play it determines whether it's a fiddle or a violin. Now, a guitar is a first cousin to a violin or a fiddle, depending upon how it's played. Now, Dennis Agajanian is supposed to be here for the last half hour of our service this morning. I don't see Dennis Agajanian. So he's got 30 minutes to show up, and he may be here, and he may not. And I was told that the worship team has a plan B, just in case he doesn't show up. Oh, yeah? Well, I, I, that's, <clears throat> rumor has it. <laughs> so, should I preach long or keep it short? You do what you need to do. Uh, do what I need to do. All right. Please turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 11. Nehemiah is the account of the building of the walls of Jerusalem after the captivity in the second group of captives that were allowed to return back, about 40,000 of them. The rebuilding of the wall began with the burden in the heart of one person, Nehemiah. When he asked about the people in Jerusalem, he was told that the people are in distress and the walls are broken down, and the name of God is in reproach. Nehemiah wept, and he prayed, and out of that prayer time, there was a burden that said, Here am I, send me. And with the agreement of King Artaxerxes, the Persian king, he went to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of, Jer of Jerusalem. <clears throat> he did so amongst, amongst much Opposition, both from within and from without. Great discouragement, great fear, and pressure, mostly from without, with threats of military opposition. But, as it turned out, the hearts of the people were in it, and their hands were invested, and in 52 days, the walls were constructed. Now, end of story, right? No. It was the reproach of God with the broken walls and the lack of the temple worship that was the main concern. And the walls were now built. The temple had been reconstructed previously. There was nobody living in Jerusalem. With a few exceptions, nobody wanted to live there. They wanted to be out with their house and their home and their property and uh, doing their thing. But somebody had to occupy Jerusalem. And that's what this chapter is about. 
Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now the leaders of the people dwelt at Jerusalem, but the rest of the people didn't, and they cast lots to bring one out of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city. And nine-tenths were to dwell in other cities. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell in Jerusalem. Heavenly Father, I pray as we look at this historical record of the repeopling of Jerusalem, I pray that we may be able to take practical application to our own lives from this historical account. And I pray, fathers, that that our, our lives as believers, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ who have repented of our sin and placed our faith in Jesus, having become children of God, joint heirs with Christ and citizens of heaven, I pray, Father, that as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, personal representatives of Jesus, here on planet Earth until Jesus comes or we die, I pray, Father, that as a result of our togetherness this morning and opening our lives and our hearts and our minds to you before the Word of God, that you would instruct us, equip us, and challenge and motivate us to represent Jesus fully and accurately. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, a fellow by the name of Justin Franchino, you may have heard of him. He does the majority of the preaching around here, but he took 90 days, and he has, I think, two or three more games to go. I believe he's in Minnesota, in Minneapolis, to, to watch a game there, 32 professional ball teams in 32 cities, of actually about 30 cities in America, L.A., Chicago, New York, maybe somewhere else have two teams. But uh, he, he got around, about 15,000 miles, I'm suspecting at least. And he's going to come back, and he's going to be doing the preaching, most of it for a, a while. And he's going to have all kinds of illustrations. Remember how every other illustration he uses in the sermon is about basketball, That's about to change. We're going to hear a lot of baseball illustrations. Well, I'm going to take some of his thunder away from him this morning. Oops, got to turn this thing on. There it is. Who be that? You recognize that guy? What's his name? The Babe. Babe Ruth. Perhaps the most famous name in baseball lore in all of baseball history. In, a, in an era when you could hit 20 home runs, you were considered way at the top. He hit 60. 60 home runs. He hit 59 one year and over 50 several times. He was uh, prodigious as a home run hitter. He also struck out a lot. <clears throat> now, he held the record for about 40 years. And in 1961, When I was a sophomore, junior in high school, I was looking at the box scores every morning to see if Roger Maris had hit another home run. And by the end of July and into August, the whole nation was was watching. This was a momentous thing. Nobody had ever come close to surpassing 
60 home runs in a season. Oh, since Roger Maris, there's 66 by Sammy Sosa, 70 by Mark McGuire, and 73 by Barry Bonds, who all looked like gorillas because they were on steroids. They cheated, and they got these astronomical numbers, but uh, they'll never be in the Hall of Fame. Babe Ruth is. He did it legitimately. So did Roger Maris. Now, how did Roger Maris hit 61? He never again hit more than 35 home runs in a season. And a few short laters, he, years later, he was out. How could he do this in 1961? Two reasons. <clears throat> Number one, Mickey Mantle. Mickey Mantle bat batted fourth. They couldn't intentionally walk Roger Maris because then they'd have to pitch to Mickey Mantle. He hit 54 home runs that year. And they couldn't walk both Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle because somebody you may never have heard of. His name was Elston Howard. They called him Ellie. He was the most feared slugger in all of baseball. It wasn't Roger Maris or Mickey Mantle, it was Elston Howard. Those other two guys struck out a lot. He didn't strike out. He always hit the ball and he hit it hard. And they didn't want to have to face him with men on base, so they pitched to the guys in front. So they had to pitch to Roger Maris, and he was able to get 61 that year. Elston Howard is the prototype second fiddle who found greatness in making others successful. That's what the true heart of a second fiddle does. His passion is to make other people successful. And he sees his role, though not in the spotlight, unrecognized, very essential nonetheless. And my question is, as we begin this message this morning, is do you, do you delight in making others successful? Or do you have to be the one in charge? The, the one that always comes in first, the one that's best, the one that's always right, the one who, without recognition, chooses to just Forget it. In 1984, I was privileged to tour Gettysburg. I was overwhelmed by the thought of over 50,000 men and one woman being killed in a four-day period on that hollowed ground. I was standing there on little round, round top along Cemetery Ridge, and right there within two or three hundred yards of me, nearly 50,000 men were slaughtered. It was the high water mark of the Civil War. From that point on, the South began to, to fade and the North to, to win. Now, we recognize such names as Abraham Lincoln, Jefferson Davis, Ulysses S. Grant, Robert E. Lee, those are names that are in our memory. But who among us can name one of the 50,000 men who died at Gettysburg? There's probably some wise guy out there that memorized one, right? <clears throat> the real heroes at Gettysburg were the soldiers who remain unnamed. And so shall it be when the big book is opened. I think we're all going to be surprised in God's economy 
as he keeps score or keeps records, so to speak, we will be shocked as he hands out the rewards. And it will not be based upon those who have recognition. It will be based upon our faithfulness to God's directives for our lives. I believe there's going to be a lot of surprises on that day. <clears throat> what is it that makes second fiddles the real heroes? First of all, it's their devotion. Above all else, it's their singular devotion to God and his agenda. To them, it's not about me, but it's about him. It's all about him. That is the credo of the mature second fiddle. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus said, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. That is the credo of the genuine second fiddle. My reward is coming, just not now. Sometimes being second fiddle is costly. Here in this text, their devotion is seen in their willingness to count the cost. Verse 1, Now the leaders of the people dwelt in Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to Jerusalem to dwell. And then in verse 2, The people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves. These people would have preferred to dwell on their own property, but willingly sacrificed their preferences. How many times are we unwilling to even sacrifice our preferences? That's what preferences are. They're just preferences. But they did so to the greater good of the, of the inhabiting of Jerusalem. Remember, behind the building of the wall was the removal of the reproach of God. And now the temple worship could be restored, God's name revered, and so they counted the cost and paid the price. Two things here, sacrifice and a willing heart. I have observed that anything in this life worthwhile never comes easily or cheaply. In our culture, and it includes us, we know a lot about convenience and we know a lot about instant gratification, but we know very little about inconvenience and sacrifice. Their willingness to sacrifice was an evidence of the condition of their heart, and that is always God's objective. He wants our heart, not mere obedience. Last week I, I contrasted King Amaziah, who obeyed the Lord, but not with a loyal heart, with King Hezekiah, who also obeyed the Lord, and he did so with a whole heart. And that's the bottom line with God, is where is our heart? If our obedience is authentic, our deeds will naturally correspond. From willing hearts, sacrifice naturally followed. They weren't concerned about who got the press clippings, only that God received the glory. Now, who were these people? A couple of weeks ago, I passed over the genealogy that was uh, in the book. This is not a genealogy, but it, but it comes close. Who were these men? The first that are listed are valiant men. In verse 6, it says, valiant men. 
They were, verse 3, they were the heads of the province that dwelt in Jerusalem. Verse 4, uh, some of the children of Judah and Benjamin. And uh, clear down through verse 9. It lists there 1,396 men who, resp- who were responsible to organize civil law and national defense. It speaks of the tribe of Ju- Judah who were the ones responsible for civil law, and the Benjamites, who were the ones responsible to organize the, the, the warriors. 1,396 are listed. Only seven are named. The rest are not even mentioned. Then the priests, in verse 10, it says, of the priests, verse 12, and their brethren who did the work of the house, 1,192 priests were responsible for the temple worship. Five of them are named. The others are not. And then, in verse 15, the Levites. And verse 16, they had oversight of the business outside of the house of God. We aren't even told how many Levites uh, organized the maintenance of the temple worship, but three are mentioned by name, but we don't even know how many. And then in verse 17 and 18, the praise and prayer corps, uh, three worship leaders are named, the rest are not, nor are they numbered. And then in verse 19, we come to the gatekeepers. Moreover, the gatekeepers, Akub and Talmud, and their brethren who kept the gates were 172. Now, how many of you know anybody by the name of Akub and Talmud? I know a, a Josiah and an Isaiah and a Jeremiah and a Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but I don't know any Akubs and Talmuds. I wonder how's come. Well, they're not exactly household names. There were 170 who were not named. And the gatekeepers must be the most reliable people around. But you know what? We don't know very many famous gatekeepers. Neither do we know very many famous Elston Howards. Yet these are the critically important people And of the gatekeepers, we read in Psalm 84, verse 10, I would rather be a gatekeeper in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Being a gatekeeper was not looked upon as really very significant. And yet, in the grand scheme of things, and I don't care where it is that God has called you to minister in the body of Christ, you are essential. Can you imagine this whole project without a gatekeeper? It could have all gone up in smoke in a heartbeat. A very significant position, yet looked upon very poorly. Then in verse 20, we're introduced to the Nethanim. Verse 21, it says they dwelt in Ophel, which was inside the walls of Jerusalem. The Nethanim were servants of the priests and the Levites, who returned on their own volition from Jerusalem to Jerusalem. None are named, 
only their two Levite overseers, Ziha and Gishpa. I like Gishpa. That, I think one of you ought to name one of your kids Gishpa. That just kind of has a ring. And then there were the singers in verse 22 and 23. Psalm 122 says, I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go into the house of the Lord. How glad would we be without the singers? Yet they are neither named nor numbered, only their overseer, Uzi. And finally, in verse 24, the colonial deputy, Pethaliah, is named, but no further reference is made to him. And yet, as the representative of the king, I'm sure that Nehemiah consulted with him many times. Now, why take the time to go through this list? Very simply for this reason, there wasn't a soloist in the lot, but together they made a beautiful symphony. Their devotion was singular, their deeds were sacrificial, so what about their destiny? Every one of us dreamed about what we would be when we grew up. But for God's faithful second fiddles, it's never stardom. Rather, obscurity. Some here, some there, most not even named, but all were essential and all were significant. And I don't have this in my notes, but I think it needs to be said. If we are looking for significance in our work, in our family, in our accomplishments, in our financial portfolio, whatever it might be, if we are looking for significance anywhere outside of our identity, as children and sons of God in Christ Jesus. Our lives will fall apart eventually. I am significant because I'm a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. I am a new creation in Christ. And it is there and only there that I find significance as well as strength to face the contingencies of life. From a human perspective, it might seem that God could give a little recognition, but true second fiddles would not want that. In 1 Peter 5 we read, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you, when the time's right, in due time. And that time will come. We're destined for opulence, not here, but there. And we're told in Hebrews 6.10, but God is not unjust to forget your labor of love. I often tell people that I have a fabulous retirement plan. I just have to die to enjoy it. <clears throat> God will not forget. There's a great day of rejoicing coming. Rewards and crowns will be lavishly given, and every one of them will be cast down at the feet of Jesus. That's the true heart of a genuine second fiddle. Remember, 
It's all about him. That same spirit reflects the heart of heaven's ultimate second fiddle. The Apostle Paul said this of Jesus in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. For this reason, the credo of all mature believers, since John the Baptist, who declared, he must increase, but I must decrease. Jesus said to die to yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Are you following Jesus? Are you truly a reflection of this spirit reflected by Jesus in his life? Are you reflecting Jesus out of fear, trying to, out of obedience that is not coming from your heart? Or is it with joy from your heart based upon relationship with him? He has called us to know him, to love him, and to enjoy him. Do we? Father, that's so often been the challenge to my heart to ask myself, do I enjoy the living God? I know God. I know you through, through Jesus. Do I love you? Do I enjoy you? Father, that's what you've called us to. And that comes through heartfelt obedience. Father, the, the door to joy begins by opening the door of repentance, followed by obedience that comes from our heart. It is in this way, Father, as we stand before you with the open word before us as you speak to us through your word, that we truly enter into relationship that is fulfilling, that is honoring to you in every way. That's our goal, and we don't, we don't, we don't often live up to that. We often falter and we often fail. And Father, it's at those times that we truly are able to hear you. And for those, Father, who, who question, who doubt, who maybe right now are wrestling with uh, failure in their lives, Father, it's at these times that uh, we're sensitive to hear you, and I pray that we will. And rather than turning to bitterness, we would turn to repentance, relationship, and forgiveness, followed by joy. So I pray in Jesus' name, amen.